Five uh, years ago, right, right around there, Alyssa and I bought a fixer-upper. It's a couple pictures here. Some of you saw it yesterday when we had you over. Not the prettiest house in the world. It's ugly, if we're honest. It's a broken-down house, uh, but livable, sort of. And uh, we lived in it before we fixed it up, uh, but not much more than livable. Didn't have a kitchen when we first moved in. They had a room they called a kitchen, no cabinets. Um, uh, they had a plug for an oven. Now, originally at the heart of the house is this 100-year-old this house. Here's an over, overhead shot uh, of our yard. So you, if you came to the cookout, we were in that yard there. This is an old picture. Those aren't my trucks. Um, but uh, overhead, in that yellow part there, that's the 100-year-old house. So that's the original house uh, built a long time ago, a working man's house, most likely a working woman's house in a, in a poor to middle-class neighborhood. Um, beautiful wooden floors, though, you know, tall ceilings, all the great stuff. But then since then, specifically in the 70s and 80s, they built onto this house, uh, room after room. Story goes, uh, it was owned by the same family for 70 years, and one of the, the matriarchs was a hoarder, so when she ran out of room, she built another room, and uh, that's how we ended up with our house. So we bought it, it was this house of rooms. One room that led to another room, and half of them aren't even on the same level. Like, there's steps going in between our rooms. Like, this is, this is my house. Um, and it's a mess of a house. And so over the last five years, we've tried to take this mess of a house and make it into a home. In the old parts, we've tried to reclaim some of the hardwood floors and trim and some of the original beauty. In the additions, we tried to bring in some of the, you know, the character and make it look like it wasn't built in the 70s with, you know, I won't get into it. But we've also replaced some of the original in the house. Not everything original is good. We got rid of the knob and tube finally, praise the Lord. We lived with knob and tube for four years. That's, that's, that's how uh, not risk-averse we are as, as a couple. Uh, added AC, praise the Lord. And it's been a mixture of reclaiming the old, updating the add-ons, and replacing the outdated. Now, if there was ever a metaphor for what we do at church for what we do in our faith, it's this. Friends, we have inherited a form of Christianity in America that's a bit of a mess. Rooms added to rooms, sometimes by hoarders, hold, holding on to things they shouldn't be holding on to, strange additions that don't make sense. And while some of it goes back to this old it's stuff and it's beautiful, it's maybe been covered in six layers of paint, and not, of course, everything original to our faith is even worth keeping to begin with. Some of it needs to be gutted and updated. And it's a bit of a mess, and it's a lot of work. Faith, the practice that we do together, our practices, our beliefs, faith with a capital F, not just what you believe, but like our faith, our practice, our religion, is a lot like owning a home. And this isn't an original metaphor. Faith is often talked about a house. Um, uh, I got a nice little house here uh, as part of my illustration. It's pretty small, but we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Jesus tells us in one of his parables, uh, he says there's two houses. One house is built on a, a solid foundation. Do you remember this parable? I think there was even a children's song about it. And the other one was built on sand. And, and you know the one on the foundation lasted. The one, if you built anything on sand, didn't. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 says a similar thing. He, he talks about faith as a house, and he talks about how it has to be built on a strong foundation. But he also talks about the materials you use to build the house. And he says, time will tell whether you chose the right materials. Some materials will last, and others will get burnt up. And if faith is a home, then 
faith deconstruction is just as it sounds. It's oftentimes a dismantling of a home, starting to take apart a house. And we start to tear down the house. Today, we're starting this series on faith deconstruction. We're going to talk about what it looks like to dismantle, question, pick apart, tear apart the things that we maybe used to believe but no longer can. Here's how uh, Wikipedia defines faith deconstruction. Uh, Wikipedia, very reliable source. Uh, I love it that they call it, first off, they they use, someone, someone had an agenda here. It's a phenomenon, which is, that's a big deal. It's a phenomenon within American evangelicalism in which Christians rethink their faith and jettison, I like that word, jettison, previously held beliefs, sometimes to the point of no longer identifying as Christians. It doesn't take much research or relationship to, to know people who've jettisoned enough of their faith that they can no longer identify as Christian. It's a process of tearing down and picking apart the things that you've held true, that you're like, this is what I believed, and you begin to question them, and sometimes you question them and you tear them apart to the point you no longer even identify as a Christian. So this is my little model home. Uh, it represents our faith, capital F, our religion, our practices, our beliefs, the things we believe, our values, our morals. And to experience faith deconstruction is to start to question these, to jettison, to to pick them apart. You know, we did a survey recently, and uh, we asked you this question. We asked you a number of questions. What what do you used to believe that you didn't believe? Uh, What what do you know about God that isn't true, but you you tend to believe it anyways? Um, What are you struggling with in regards to your faith? And I'm so grateful for uh, your answers. So much vulnerability, so much honesty. In these questions. Here were some of the things that I heard. People said things, I, I used to not believe that women could be pastors. Uh, I was taught that women, you know, shouldn't lead and they should only have a certain role in the church. People mentioned that they, you know, a lot of churches teach you have to be baptized a certain way. And if you're not, you're not, you're going to hell. Or you got to believe a certain set of doctrines. And if you don't do that, you're going to hell. And people talked about uh, the fear of sinning and how certain sins are worse than other sins. And if you, you know, you got you to do everything just right. And if you don't, you're going to go to hell. People talked about LGBTQ inclusion. How they were taught you can't, you know, maybe you love from a distance, love the sinner, hate the sin, but ultimately not accepting of LGBTQ and how they don't believe that anymore. People talk about American Christianity in a variety of forms, politics, Christian white nationalism, uh, conservative politics, all of these types of things. And these are parts of your faith that you were raised in and you were brought in and you're slowly dismantling it to the point each one of these beliefs become walls and roofs that hold your faith. Faith deconstruction means taking this apart. And sometimes this is how you end up feeling. How many people feel like this today? Just a mess. Left with nothing but the remains of a house. Just a pile of trash. That's a terrifying place to be. And we're having this series because a lot of people in our community are there. Um, Questioning stuff, wrestling with stuff, asking big questions. Richard Rohr is a bit of an expert on these things. Uh, He wrote a book called Falling Upward. 
It's a great book with lots of big ideas uh, that I recommend to you, but I, I found his thesis spelled out in some of the first couple chapters is worth the price of admission. He argues that there are two major tasks in life. His explanation right at the beginning of the introduction says it like this. He says, there is much evidence on several levels that there are at least two major tasks in the human life. The first task is to build a strong container or identity. The second is to find the contents that the container was meant to hold. Can you guys put that quote up? He says, there is much evidence on several levels that there are at least two major tasks to the human life. The first task is to build a strong container or identity. The second is to find the contents that the container was meant to hold. And he calls these the first and the second half of life. We're going to spend some time with this. In the first half of life, we're building a container. You can imagine any container you want. You can, you're building a house. That's just a very large container. Uh, uh, you can imagine a variety of containers. Um, and you got your first half where you're building it. In the second half of life, you're, you're talking about what fills it. So we're figuring out in the first life, first half of life, we're figuring out how to live in this world. This is what it means to build a container. We, we got to get a job. We got a place to live. We learn what's right and wrong, what's good and evil. We build its structure. We're putting up walls and boundaries to shape our life. We're building this container. We're building the house we get to live in. And with all the mundane uh, decisions that we make, our job, our friends, our values, our morals, and everyone starts in the first half of life. But too few, he argues, make it to the second half. The second half is all about what you fill that container with. What's our grand purpose? What is our calling? What is life really about? You see, life was not about the first half. It isn't about education or learning or jobs. It's about what you do with those things. It's like this. We work hard to get a house, but only then do you start building a home. Do you see what I'm saying? Getting the house is just the first step, and then you have to figure out, what do I do with this house, and how do I build a life that makes sense and meaningful? So the first half is all about building the container. For us, we're going to look at the container as a house with walls and a door and a window, and our faith is a container, uh, a home. And we build it, and we really, it's people help us build it. The walls you put up in your house that we call our faith, our religion, it was built by other people. It was decided by our community, by what our parents taught us, by what our uh, Sunday school teachers taught us, by what our campus ministry taught us, by what our preachers taught us. All of these become structure that we build our faith with. But faith, all of these practices and beliefs, even though they're important, they are only ever meant to be the container to hold something else. Here's how Paul explains it in 2 Corinthians 4.7. He says, but we have this treasure in clay pots, another container. So that the awesome power of God belongs to God and doesn't come from us. Paul's talking about the overwhelming, amazing nature of God's mercy and power and grace. That's the treasure. You're here, I'm guessing, because either right now or at some point in your life, you woke up to the idea that maybe there was a God in the universe. And that God was bigger and stronger and awesome is the, is, is the English translation of a lot of the, the words in English. Awesome, but not like, not like awesome like that's super cool, but like awesome, like the feeling you get when you look at the Grand Canyon awesome. 
And he says this awesomeness of God is held in a clay pot. There's a treasure, and we have this container, these practices and uh, um, boundaries and rules that hold. But here's the thing. He says it's a clay pot. And here's the thing about clay pots, like old homes. They're imperfect, fragile, sometimes broken, sometimes not built correctly, which is an ideal, but, isn't, but, but the point isn't the container itself. It's what it holds. This is how I feel about Christianity. Our faith, the faith you were raised with, if you were, is a clay pot. And for some, it's been cracked. For others, if you're honest, you've thrown it against the floor, and it's broken to a lot of different pieces. In others, you're not even realizing that it is a clay pot. You think it's the whole story. But let me reassure you, wherever you are, that the most valuable thing about Christianity isn't Christianity. Oh. The most valuable thing about Christianity isn't Christianity, all of its practices and beliefs. The most valuable thing about Christianity is the treasure that it holds. The very presence of God, this mystery and grace and power. Our faith, our religion is imperfect, but that's not the point. The thing that, that, that's most important is what it holds, what it contains, the treasure. In fact, Jesus talks about this a lot when he, in the parables when he talks about a treasure. He talks about it as one that you, you go and you find a treasure in a field, you sell everything you have to buy that field, or a pearl of great price. It's this treasure. He's talking about the, the very essence of what it means to experience the divine. That's what's really important. You'll, you'll sell everything once you realize that. That's the most important. Not, not necessarily our practices, doctrine, and belief. They're important, though. We need something to hold the treasure in, but they're not the point. And there isn't any reason we can't change the container. In fact, this is what we're going to get into. Jesus would argue you have to. Because the treasure, what's really important, changes and grows so much that our container has to change and grow as well. The rules, our walls, the boundaries that shape our faith have to change or we won't be able to hold what's most important. Think of it like this. It's like raising a child, which we're trying to do. Amen, parents? We're trying. It ain't always easy. Children need structure. That's what I've been told. Not super good at that. Children need structure. They need it to be simple, too, something they can understand. Because of this, you tell children simple things like this. You say, don't talk to strangers. Why? Because strangers could be dangerous. To be fair, this is not something we've taught Finn. If you've met him, you know. (laughs) But it's still an okay thing to teach. You say, don't talk to strangers because strangers could be dangerous. Now, are all strangers dangerous? No. You all are strangers, if I've not met. You're not dangerous, right? But why risk it with a child? You just need to keep it simple. So you say, for kids, you keep it simple. You say black and white, very simple structure, don't talk to strangers. Now, imagine if you continued to follow that rule into adulthood. Would you make it? Could you hold down a job? (laughs) Even if you figured out how to make it in a world without ever talking to a stranger, would you have an interesting life? No, 
Can you imagine if you continued to follow the rule? For children, it's fine. Don't talk to strangers. But for adults, you need to talk to strangers. In fact, if you don't, you won't be able to make it or you'll have a boring life. And even more so, if you decide as a Christian, I'm not going to talk to strangers, you'll do nothing to build the kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus says the only way you can build the kingdom of God is by talking to strangers. In other words, stay with me, a simple rule for, child, for a child in the first half of life has to change for an adult in the second half of life. Because if you don't, that rule doesn't change. What becomes good structure for children becomes a barrier for adults to actually living the way God wants. Now, does it make the rule, don't talk to strangers, bad? No. It's fine for a season. And the same is true for faith. When we start out in our faith, we need structure. We keep it simple. Do this, don't do that. But in time, in maturity, you have to move on from that. And it's not just as individuals, but like people of God, the whole story of God encompassing thousands of years, the entire people of God starting out learning you know, about God for the first time as infants in the faith. Going back all the way to the Old Testament, time of the patriarchs, they needed something simple, easy, and clear. Let's take a very basic example. The Ten Commandments. You all remember those? Great, simple ten rules. Do you, shout them out. What are some of the Ten Commandments? Don't steal. Don't covet. Don't lie. Honor your mother and father. Still working on that one. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't murder. Those are some of them. Here, I'm going to take the, you guys listed the ones. The, the Ten Commandments, just fun fact, are, are the first half have to do with loving God. The second half have to do with loving your neighbor. That's how Jesus summarizes the whole Bible. Not today's lesson, but fun to know. And uh, so we're going to look at the second half, the, the, the relationship we have with other people. They are honor your parents. Don't murder. Don't cheat on your spouse. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't be jealous of what other people have. Simple, black and white. Easy to remember. You guys just proved that. You learned it at some point. Good rules to live by, fine rules. But these rules are for the first half of life and necessary as a starting point. But they aren't meant to be where it ends. These rules are like talk, telling your kids, don't talk to strangers. They're good rules for the first half, but in maturity, we have to do a little bit more and we have to do them a little bit differently. They're actually nuanced. For example, consider the first one. Honor your parents. Okay, fine rule, good rule, something we want our kids to follow, something that, you know, I don't know that we've taught Finn that rule as much as we should have. We just, we're, we're just kick-starting Finn into the second half of life. I don't know if that's, Richard Rohr said that's not a good idea, by the way, but um, honor your parents, good rule, something we want our kids to follow, but not for the second half of life and not for disciples of Jesus. Because you know what Jesus says about honoring your parents? He says, he says, if you don't hate your parents, you can't be my disciple. That's what Jesus says about honoring your parents. Luke 14, 26, you can look it up. It's a great little passage. And honestly, it's a, it's a great verse if you've ever had a hard relationship with your parents. You're like, thank you, Jesus. You gave me permission. And I'm being serious. Here, here's the point. When he said that, he's not contradicting the Old Testament. He's showing us what spiritual growth looks like. We start out with something simple. For the most part, honoring your parents is a good idea, especially at some, 
one part in your life. It's just a good thing to do. It's how we build families and cultures, society. But we have to grow into something more complex. Jesus is moving people to something more complex where we honor them, but at times we, we have to dishonor them by choosing God over our parents, by choosing what's right and good over our parents, by choosing to love our neighbors our parents don't want us to love, by choosing to love our own families more than our parents, which is sometimes hard for parents. In maturity, we realize that to follow God, we might have to actually forsake our parents. That we might have to leave them behind. We might have to do things that they don't approve of. And you're doing them, they don't approve of them, but God has asked you to do them anyways. It happens. And if we're going to take our faith seriously, we're not throwing away our faith, we're taking it more seriously, then this is what Jesus means when he says to hate your parents. So sure, honoring your father and mother is a fine place to start, but if you want to take your faith seriously, you have to grow beyond that. Think about another one. Do not murder. Always a good idea. I'm a fan. But Jesus says it's not enough. What does he say about murder? Sermon on the Mount, he says, you have heard it said don't murder, but I say to you, if you hate someone, it's just as bad. You see, as a kid, you say don't murder, but eventually you got to teach your kid it's not just about not murdering. It's about the hate that we harbor in our hearts. And that that's just as a powerful and dangerous thing for society and for the people of God as the actual act of murdering. Do you see what I'm saying here? There are similar examples for all Ten Commandments. We're not going to do them all. The first half, though, is simple, black and white. The second half is nuanced, and it usually calls us into the spirit of the law and invites us into this deeper relationship with God. So here's what we have. These two halves. First half... Necessary, good, uh, can't, you know, but you can't live your whole life there. The second half is more nuanced. It's complicated. It's contextual. It requires maturity and wisdom. And now this isn't about age. There are some people who are old who are still pretty childish and stuck in the first half of life, living with just simple rules, black and white, do this, don't do that. And there are also young people who, because of their experience and wisdom, that have, you know, gained life and experience that rival their elders. Now, here's why I say this. I think faith deconstruction, or the act of dismantling your faith, our faith, is a necessary part of the journey from the first half to the second half of life. It's required. Now, let me give you a caveat, since we're in the second half of life. Not all faith deconstruction will take you to the second half of life. But you can't move from the first half of life to the second without faith deconstruction. It's possible to have faith deconstruction, just question everything, and then eventually throw it away. You, just, you leave the graph entirely. But if you want to get to the second half of life, it will require you to question some of the things that you've assumed. Faith deconstruction, the, the, the art of unlearning some things, is necessary for maturity. Now, most of the things you all listed in the survey, as I read through probably about 20 or 30 surveys, most of the things you listed in the survey uh, that you used to believe that you don't believe anymore, they were first half of life stuff. Hard, black and white rules, you know, baptism has to be a certain way, you have to pray a certain way to be saved and say the sinner's prayer, you have to attend church a certain amount of times, or you're not a Christian, you have to do this, or you have to do that, or you're not allowed to do this, or you can't love them, or, you know, like all of these types of things. And best case scenario, best case scenario, those, uh, who, uh, those things might have been helpful for a season, some of those rules, but eventually you have to leave them behind. Or as Paul says in his, his, his chapter on love, 
where he says love is the most important thing. He says this, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. But when I became an adult, I put the ways of childhood behind me. What do you think he's saying? In the context of this chapter, if you read 1 Corinthians 13, I mean, he makes it very clear. He says you could, you could serve the poor and worship God and do all of these Christian practices, but if you don't have love, it's worthless. That's the, that's the difference between childhood and adulthood, is moving from just doing things, do this, don't do that, to an actual place where you're being transformed and you're filling that container that we call our faith with very meaningful things. You're moving into maturity. In fact, this isn't for everybody, and it's okay to not be in the second half of life. You be wherever you are. That's no wrong here. Uh, Paul might give you a hard time. He says it like this in 1 Corinthians 3, 2. He says, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. Now, you know what he's saying. When he says, I gave you milk... He's like, you guys are all acting like babies. You can't even handle solid food yet. He says, you weren't ready for that second half of life. You're you're still drinking milk like a child. You can't handle the hard stuff. And here's, here's what I love about this community. You all are ready. In fact... If, you're, if you find yourself, and I, I want this to come across as like hopeful, because I know the deconstruction, because I know a lot of people experience it, can be very confusing or, or disorienting, or you feel bad, you feel guilty for questioning things that your parents taught you or your previous pastor taught you, whatever. I want you to say that if you are questioning some things about your faith and what you were given, you're already, you're already doing it. You're on the journey, and it's a good thing, depending on what you do with it. I'll tell you right now, my bias, we're going to walk through this together over the next uh, five weeks. My bias is I, I'd like for you to, if you're going to deconstruct, I, I, I want to help you do it in a way that you can still uh, be, stay a follower of Jesus. Now, if you're here today in church, then there's a good chance that's what you want as well. Um, I've walked with people who've opted out of Christianity more than once, and it always breaks my heart, but I also am not going to twist anyone's arm. But my hope, my prayer is to give you a way to not just deconstruct, but reconstruct. So this kind of teaching, this idea of like leaving behind the childish things and moving to adulthood, you see it throughout Scripture. Uh, it's the main story of the New Testament. It's one of the main teachings of Jesus. It's what we say when we say good news. Uh, what do you think Jesus meant when he said, be born again? As an adult, be born again. You're moving into a new life even though you were already born once. And once you see it, once you know it, you, you, you'll see that God uses, talks about this all the time. I'll, I'll give you one more example we're going to spend some time with. Jesus explained it like this, using another metaphor, another container, nonetheless. And this time, instead of a house or a clay pot, he he talks about a wineskin. He said this, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. It's a very simple metaphor that might be lost on some of us because uh, we don't use wineskins. I don't know if anyone's owned a wineskin before. Um, I looked up wineskins, and it turns out I always imagine it's kind of like a little flask, you know, a bottle of wine. No, it's like a keg of wine. It's a giant animal sack skin. It's leather. Sorry, leather's more palatable. Sorry, it's leather, (laughs) which is animal skin. 
It's leather. It's this giant leather pouch, like the, like the, almost like a keg, and you fill it up with wine. But it's leather, so it, 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 you put new wine in it, and the wine expands with new wines, with the new skin, and so it can flex and make room for the, for the wine as it, as it expands and ages. Well, if you take one that's already been used, one, it's already been stretched, but also it's started to dry out. It's gotten brittle. So if you put new wine into that, and it tries to expand, you know what'll happen. You'll lose all of your wine. It'll burst. And he says you gotta put new wine into new wineskin, into flexible wineskin. So the lesson here is simple. We have to leave behind the brittle, rigid belief of our childhood that was maybe necessary for a season to something that's more flexible. We have to allow room for God's ever-expanding good news. Maturity in faith is moving from a place of rigid thoughts and beliefs to more flexible ideas. Here's what I would argue. A sign of spiritual maturity is that you become soft and flexible over time. A sign of spiritual immaturity is that you become more rigid, double down on the rules, fixate on them, and this kind of brittle thinking is unable to safely hold God's love, God's grace, and good news. And once again, it's not about the container. It's about the treasure that's in the container. So we have to have containers that can hold that thing that we value most, which is God's presence, God's grace, God's love. And I think faith deconstruction at its best is the process of becoming new wineskins. This is how we build a new kind of faith in God. So we got our little model house here. And uh, let's see after a day of partying whether I can put this together. We have to become a more flexible container. We, so one of the things we can do is we can learn. You know, we are taught, I was taught even at a young age that women shouldn't lead. I began to question that at a pretty young age and uh, realized that, uh, you know, maybe God does call women. And then I started studying scripture. And I'm like, you know what? There's all kinds of stories of women leading. Deborah, the gospel was first preached by women. And I see women with gifts and talents that, are, that rival my own. And so I start a new kind of theology, a different way of thinking. We learn that uh, maybe baptism had to be a certain way. Well, you know, begin to realize that that's not the case, that it's not really about baptism, that our particular church has one doctrine of baptism, but there's lots of doctrines of baptism, and it's not really about the water, and most good theologians wouldn't say that. It's about what it teaches us and what it points to and, and all of that sort of stuff. So we develop a new way of thinking and a new way of uh, imagining it. And so we start building this new house. We learn at a young age that it's about exclusion. Don't talk to strangers or any other don't talk to love. But over time, we're like, no, that doesn't make sense. In fact, here's one of the biggest reasons I find, based on your survey alone, but also my experience, why people deconstruct is you find yourself in a home that your friends aren't welcome in. You've been built, you've been taught, you've put up walls. It says, these are my foundational beliefs. And so all of a sudden, you have this home that you're like, I don't even want to tell people I'm a Christian. Someone told me that recently. Not the first time I've heard it. 
In Bible class, someone was like, I don't even like telling people I'm a Christian. In other words, you've built, you live in a home by association that you're like, I, I'm uncomfortable with it. So part of faith deconstruction is like, well, let's take down some of those walls and let's build up new ones. Not walls uh, that keep people out, but walls that can hold up a roof that you can invite people into. And we refuse to be a church that uh, associates with Christian nationalism and uh, um, uh, white supremacy and you develop this new theology. So over time, you start building this new house. Maybe. Get in there. And you think through all of the stuff in your survey. Or how you'd answer the question, what is something you used to believe that you don't believe anymore? What do you need to toss out and what do you need to keep? You know, we've been working on a house for a long time. Five years. And what I can say around faith deconstruction as related to working on a house is pretty simple. If you do it all at once, it's a little overwhelming. We worked on our house one time and uh, we had someone working on almost every room of the house. We, we couldn't live there. You can't live there when that's happening. Uh, so we had to go live in another house. And, I, and I'm sure some of us have experienced that in our faith. You had to take a break from church or, or whatever. And so the, the easiest way to do it is just little room at a time, slowly over time, tearing down one thing and another and another. Now, I'm here to tell you that whether it's faith or an actual house, it isn't easy. Trust me, as someone who's done both. It takes longer than you think. It costs more than you think. But it's worth it. And that's what I want to do in this series. It's okay to question things about your faith. In fact, it's normal. Some things that you were taught have to get tossed out. Other things need to be updated. Some just need to be reclaimed. They're actually beautiful. They're original to the house. And you're just like, oh, man, why did we put shag carpet on that to begin with? It's beautiful. Let's get back to it. Some things, just because they're original, aren't safe. Just because it's original to faith doesn't mean it's good. Some of that's got to get tossed out. You know, knob and tube was great when it was first invented. But eventually you're like, you know what? Not, safe, not the safest option anymore. Is it safer than kerosene lights? Yeah, probably. But that's it. And so there's things, original faith, that we have to get rid of. But in the end, what we're trying to do is build a home that you're proud of. A home that you can invite friends over. A home or a faith that helps you love your neighbor and love God. So the question is, how do we do it? Well, Next week, we're going to start talking about that. Very practical, step-by-step. How do you get rid of some things, and how do you keep others? And I really do hope that you'll join us as we continue to unpack. I'm going to, I'm going to spend some more time talking about uh, house remodels and what it means to deconstruct and reconstruct and uh, give you some really practical, simple tips on how to reimagine your faith. Not because it's not worth it, but because it's 100% worth it. What does it mean to actually become a more faithful follower of Jesus? Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for the ways in which you speak to us. God, I ask that whatever's going through our hearts and minds, that you'd give us peace that passes all understanding.
that the things that we have trouble letting go of, the things and the assumptions we have about our faith, the things that maybe we are taught, well-intentioned taught, that are keeping us from being your disciple, that are keeping us from loving the stranger or keeping us from doing the very thing you called us to do. Lord, you would help us just wrestle through that. God, we want to be people that bear fruit, and we know, just as your parables as well as agriculture teaches us, that means there's some things that need to be pruned. Not everything we started with is useful for the journey. Help us do that wisely, that we might not lose our faith, but grow it. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.